Hello, welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja, and today I will continue my conversation about Edward Said's Orientalism. And in today's lecture, we'll finish the second part of his discussion in part three of his introduction, which is on methodology. Now, if you have watched the previous videos in this series, you know that we are at that point in the introduction to Orientalism, where Saeed is explaining his methodology, and within that he's also explaining what he means by Orientalism, how it is connected to Foucault's concept of discourse, and how the question mainly is of the exteriority. What he means by that is that while we read inside the text, there is so much outside of the text, the exteriority of it, which determines what is in the text. And that outside is Orientalism. That outside is the discourse. So in this part of the introduction, he's building up on that. And by the end of this video today, we would have covered his explanation of methodology and then we will move on to the third part of this part three of introduction where he talks about his personal preferences. So remember, this discussion started with his explanation of the difference between the scientific discourse and humanistic discourse, right, and why that distinction is maintained. Then he goes into the question of method, which we are discussing right now, and then he'll give us his personal take on the project itself, and that would conclude the introduction. After I'm done with this reading and discussion, then I'll probably do a brief video concluding our discussion of the introduction. Now, please bear in mind that the method that we are following is I go and read parts of the actual text and then come back and in conversation with you try to unpack it, and that is exactly what we will do. Now, if you're new to this, I highly recommend that you should watch all the other videos and the link will come up there. Just click on it and watch them and then you'll be caught up and you'll be right where we are today. So here, I'm going to go and read some more and then come back and talk about it. And for insisting upon exteriority is that I believe it needs to be made clear about cultural discourse and exchange within a culture that what is commonly circulated by it is not truth, but representations. It hardly needs to be demonstrated against that language. Itself is a highly organized and encoded system, which employs many devices to express, indicate, exchange, messages and information, represent and so forth. In any instance of at least written language, there is no such thing as a delivered presence, but a represence or a representation. The value, efficacy, strength, apparent veracity of a written statement about the Orient therefore relies very little and cannot instrumentally depend on the Orient as such. On the contrary, the written statement is a presence to the reader by virtue of its having excluded, displaced, made superrogatory any such real thing as the Orient. Thus all of Orientalism stands forth and away from the Orient. 
that Orientalism makes sense at all depends more on the West than on the Orient, and this sense is directly indebted to various Western techniques of representation that make the Orient visible, clear, there in discourse about it. And these representations rely upon institutions, traditions, conventions, agreed upon codes of understanding for their effects, not upon a distant and amorphous Orient. Okay, so what I just read, one of the things that he's making absolutely clear is the distinction between truth and representation and the role that language and discourse play in it. So what that highlights is that within Orientalism and even in the other reality, whenever something is represented to us in textual form, it cannot necessarily capture the truth itself because truth is, after all, represented. And representation can be oral, it can be written, it can be documented. But the moment we enter the realm of the representation, we are then entering over-determinisms, the discursive over-determinisms, like what is the exteriority of the text, right? So there is no moment where he says where a text can represent something and make it present. No, in the act of representation, there are certain choices that the authors make, but in so many cases, those choices are already predetermined or overdetermined by the discourse in which they are working. So hence, the orient that we get is not necessarily, should not necessarily be measured in terms of a true representation, because true representation is almost impossible, but that through acts of exclusion and through highlighting certain things and not talking about others, a certain view of the Orient is represented. And we already know through our discussion of the introduction that that view is formed by discourses, by knowledge produced by other Orientalists, right? So there is no moment that the real Orient itself either can be represented or can be made present. Two, Orient is represented to Western audiences according to their expectations within the parameters of the Orientalist discourse that already exists. And in this entire process, the Orient itself which cannot represent itself, right, is detached from the act of representation. Now, this is really important for all of us to understand, the question of representation. Because what we forget when we are debating these texts produced by, let's say, Western authors and scholars, we always measure them from the point of view of veracity, right? was like, oh, this is not how Pakistan is, this is not how... India is, you don't know the real India as if we can know the real India and Pakistan. Remember, our understanding of any reality is textual and is discursive, right? There is no way in which we as human beings who function through language can go and retrieve the real thing and present it. So an act of communication in textual form or in a conversation is always semiotic, it's expressed in language, 
And if that language is over-determined by a larger discourse in which we live, which for Said is Orientalism, then that representation is offered to a certain audience, which is Western audience, within the parameters of that discourse. And that is the question of representation itself. That's why he's going to the exteriority of the text. Because in order to understand the representations within the text, what choices are being made, what metaphors, similes, you know, tropes are being used, he has to then go out into the larger discourse which construct those kind of tropes, metaphors, and similes about the Orient. And that is an important factor in understanding Said, in understanding Orientalism, but, you know, also in doing good work in post-colonial theory, right? So let's go and read some more, and then I'll come back and talk about it. Representations of the Orient before the last third of the 18th century and those after it that is, those belonging to what I call modern Orientalism, is that the range of representation expanded enormously in the later period. It is true that after William Jones and Anquetil Duporn, and after Napoleon's Egyptian expedition, Europe came to know the Orient more scientifically, to live in it with greater authority and discipline than ever before. But what mattered to Europe was the expanded scope and the much greater refinement given its techniques for receiving the Orient. When around the turn of the 18th century, the Orient definitively revealed the age of its languages, thus outdating Hebrew's divine pedigree, it was a group of Europeans who made the discovery, passed it on to other scholars, and pre preserved the discovery in the new science of Indo-European philology. A new powerful science for viewing the linguistic orient was born, and with it, as Foucault has shown in The Order of Things, a whole web of related scientific interests. Similarly, William Beckford, Byron, Goethe, and Hugo restructured the orient by their art and made its colors, lights, and people visible through their images, rhythms, and motifs. At most, the real orient prov provoked a writer to his vision. It very rarely guided it. Okay, so in this excerpt that I just read, we are still on the topic of representation, but he's drawing a distinction between the 18th century Orientalism and then what comes after Napoleonic invasion of Egypt. And the distinction is that since Napoleon goes there, as Said would later say in one of his interviews and in the book as well, with thousands of scientists and anthropologists and geographers and cartographers, he has the power, they have the power to record Egypt, right? That's why Said considers Napoleonic invasion of Egypt as this originary moment which launches a new kind of Orientalism. And that new kind of Orientalism is scientific, perpetuates knowledge, produces it, disseminates that. And then people who come after that work within that knowledge power nexus. And there is a reference to Foucault's order of things, right? Order of things is how disciplines come to be, and that part of the, the disciplinary study is 
the development of a discourse. How do you develop a discourse? You have experts in it. You have scientific knowledge or a claim to scientificity. You have journals, materials that perpetuate that knowledge, and that is how a field of study emerges. So post-Napoleonic invasion then, Orientalism has this scientific shift, but there is a body of knowledge that is now available, right? And then because of that body of knowledge and the discursive weight of that knowledge, people who are producing it take that and in their artistic works then create the kind of orient that they want to represent, right? It's informed by that research, that knowledge, but also informed by their imagination. And in the process, the real orient, right? The reality of the real orient is not the one that is guiding these writers. It's their desire or their vision or their imagining of the orient, right? And we already know that that desire, that imagining, that view of the orient doesn't stem from within the poets and authors that is socially constructed and that is discursively produced through the knowledges produced about the Orient in different fields of study. So that's my take on this particular section of uh, the introduction. We are still on the question of representation. Let's read a little more and see what else Said has to say. Some responded more to the culture that produced it then to its putative object, which was also produced by the West. Thus, the history of Orientalism has both an internal consistency and a highly articulated set of relationships to the dominant culture surrounding it. My analysis consequently tries to show the field's shape and internal organization, its pioneers, patriarchal authorities, canonical texts, doxological ideas, exemplary figures, its followers, elab elaborators, and new authorities. I try also to explain how Orientalism borrowed and was frequently informed by strong ideas, doctrines, and trends ruling the culture. Thus there was and is a linguistic orient, a Freudian orient, a Spenglerian orient, a Darwinian orient, a racist orient, and so on. So in this brief section as well, there are references to the internal consistency of Orientalism, right? But it is not driven by its object of study, the Orient itself, which is also created through this discourse of Orientalism, but by the logic of the field itself. And the field is not necessarily monolithic because, look, there is a reference to Spangler, who's a historian, famously wrote The Decline of the West, right? Um, references to Darwin and others. There are these different branches of knowledge, right? Trying to represent Orient scientifically, historically, and in other ways. But what brings it together is the general discourse of Orientalism, right? These disparate fields by and large saying similar things about the Orient, right? That is what is the point. And what he's saying is that I am accounting for these different figures from different branches of knowledge, who writes what, how, right? Which field are they from? Who are the ones who perpetuate certain mythologies and certain knowledges? 
who follows them. So now we are going into further details of the methodology that kind of defends Said's usage of different texts from different fields because what he's saying is that these may be scientific texts, sociological texts, historical texts, anthropological texts, and creative texts, but what brings them together, which he has already defined, is the discourse of Orientalism, right? And that that discourse creates the object of study itself, right? But also creates the logic within which things about that object of study are produced. Now, this is deeply Foucauldian, okay? One aspect of the discursive frameworks or discourse in Foucault is that a discourse inherently then creates its own objects of study. Why? Because it needs them to perpetuate itself. What is a good example? I mean, look at the discourse of psychiatry or psychology. One aspect of it is it constantly tries to map how the human consciousness works, but it then must also consciousness research forces people to go and figure out new diseases, new disorders, right? And that's creation of newer objects of study. That's what all research is driven towards, right? When we tell our students to be original, we are asking them to find a different way of looking at one object of study or find a new object of study. So within the discourse of Orientalism, then, there is not necessarily just production of knowledge, but constant creation or constant renderings of the object of study called the Orient, but the object of study itself is by this time discursively produced. It's an outcome of discourse, so there is no moment that someone actually goes and touches and retrieves the real Orient. That's the point. We are still then working with representation, right, in which individuals are accounted for. Now, Said, I don't know if I've covered that point yet or not. He makes a clear distinction between his usage of Foucault, what he's saying, and what he suggests is that he, while he is relying on the theory of discourse, what he also, where he differs from Foucault, is the point that individual writers and researchers also leave their imprint which impacts the discourse and that's the distinction that he draws between his approach to discourse and Foucault's approach to discourse. So let's read a little more and let's talk about it. Never has there been such a thing as a pure or unconditional orient. Similarly, never has there been a non-material form of orientalism, much less something so innocent as an idea of the orient. In this underlying conviction and in, it, in, and in its ensuing methodological consequences, do I differ from scholars who study the history of ideas? For the emphasis and the executive form, above all, the material effectiveness of statements made by Orientalist discourse are possible in ways that any hermetic history of ideas tends completely to scant. Without those emphases and that material effectiveness, or Orientalism would be just another idea, whereas it is and was much more than that. Therefore, I set out to examine not only scholarly works, but also works of literature. 
political tracts, journalistic texts, travel books, religious and philological studies. In other words, my hybrid perspective is broadly historical and anthropological, given that I believe all texts to be worldly and circumstantial in, of course, ways that vary from genre to genre and from historical period to historical period. Unlike Michel Foucault, whose work I'm greatly in, to, to whose work I'm greatly indebted, I do believe in the determining imprint of individual writers upon the otherwise anonymous collective body of text constituting a discursive formation like Orientalism. The unity of the large ensemble of texts I anal analyze is due in part to the fact that they frequently refer to each other. Orientalism is, after all, a system for citing works and authors. Edward William Lane's Manners and Customs of the Modern Egyptians was read and cited by such diverse figures as Narval, Flaubert, and Richard Burton. He was an authority whose use was an imperative for anyone writing or thinking about the Orient, not just about Egypt. When Nerhual borrows passages verbatim from modern Egyptians, it is to use Lane's authority to assist him in describing village scenes in Syria, not Egypt. Lane's authority and the opportunities provided for citing him discriminately as well as indiscriminately were there because Orientalism could give this his text the kind of distributive currency that he acquired. There is no way, however, of understanding Lane's currency without understa also understanding the peculiar features of his text. This is equally, equally true of Renan, Sacy, Lamartine, Schlegel, and a group of other influential writers. Foucault believes that in general the individual text or author counts for very little. Empirically, in the case of Orientalism and perhaps nowhere else, I find this not to be so. Accordingly, my analysis employ close textual reading. So Saeed is making a couple of really important distinctions over here. The first is his insistence that what he is dealing with is material and not ideological or just based in discussing an idea. What does he mean by that? Now, if you read Foucault's discussion of the discourse, especially in uh, the archaeology of knowledge, we know that what he says is that discourse is material in two ways. Material because it has an apparatus, right? It has printing offices, doctors, scientists, representing a certain reality. So that's its materiality in one way. In the form of another form of its materiality is that it literally impacts people's bodies and lives. How? So if you look at the discourse of psychiatry, right? If a psychologist or psychiatrist declares your child is ADD, that's not just an idea, right? There is material apparatus behind that pronouncement. And then the child's life will be impacted by what kind of education he or she will get, what kind of medication, what kind of activities. So, so there is a material impact. And Saeed is saying, I'm not discussing Orientalism as an idea. I'm studying it as a discourse. And hence, I will focus on the very materiality of that discourse, right? Two, 
and I kind of jumped the gun on it, he then goes and explains as to why, maybe in case of Orientalism, he has to go against one of the major assertions by Foucault, and that is, it comes clear in one of his essays to what is an author, right? This idea that there is a certain extreme form of over-determinism in a discourse where the individual utterance is overtaken by the discourse within which that is made. But what he's saying is that in this case, I am going to read individual texts because Said believes that individual authors and historians have a certain imprint that impacts other people's works. And he gives us the example of Edward William Lane, where he's saying is that I can't discuss Lane's work or influence of Lane's work without discussing the work itself and its impact, because what he's saying is people are reading Lane even when they are in Egypt or Syria, and when they have to represent those lives, like the village life by Nerval, even though Nerval went there, when it comes to representing that life, they are relying on the knowledge, research knowledge provided by Edium, Ed, Edward William Lane. And what that means is that for Said, accounting for that influence, all coming together in this discourse called Orientalism is important. Hence, in terms of his methodology, what he's saying is that if you see me reading individual texts and performing a close reading on them, here is my reason. I'm not just looking at the exteriority in terms of the discourse, but I'm also looking at how this text is cited in that text because, as he says, Orientalism, after all, is also a system of citations, sometimes direct citations and sometimes derived citations, right? So this is the important distinction that we need to keep in mind. Also, for our understanding of Orientalism, we, what we always must keep in mind is that for Said, Orientalism is a discourse. It's not a simple idea. It's not a question of misrepresentation. It's not a question of propaganda. It's not a question of representing truth in a wrong way. No. We cannot understand Orientalism without understanding his understandings of discourse. Foucauldian discourse and then how he tweaks it and one important aspect of that tweaking which he's acknowledging in this methodological section is that he will pay attention to individual works because the individual works also impact other works. So that's where we are so far. Let's read a little more and then come back and I'm hoping I should be able to conclude it today's conversation after that reading. Analyses employ close textual readings whose goal is to reveal the dialectic between individual text or writer and the complex collective formation to which his work is a contribution. Yet even though it includes an ample selection of writers, this book is still far from a complete history or general account of Orientalism. Of this failing, I'm very conscious. The fabric of as, as thick a discourse as Orientalism has survived and functioned in Western society because of its richness. 
all I have done is to describe parts of that fabric at certain moments and merely to suggest the existence of a larger whole, detailed, interesting, dotted with fascinating figures, texts, and events. I have consoled myself with believing that this book is one installment of several and hope there are scholars and critics who might want to write others. There is still a general essay to be written on imperialism and culture. Other studies would go more deeply into the connection between Orientalism and pedagogy, or into Italian, Dutch, German, and Swiss Orientalism, or into the dynamic between scholarship and imaginative writing, or into the relationship between administrative ideas and intellectual discipline. Perhaps the most important task of all would be to undertake studies in contemporary alternatives to Orientalism, to ask how one can study other cultures and peoples from a libertarian or a non-repressive and non-manipulative perspective. But then one would have to rethink the whole complex problem of knowledge and power. These are all tasks left embarrassingly incomplete in this study. Last, perhaps self-flattering observation on method that I want to make here is that I've written this study with several audiences in mind. For students of literature and criticism, Orientalism offers a marvelous instance of the interrelations between society, history, and textuality. Moreover, the cultural role played by the Orient in the West connects Orientalism with ideology, politics, and the logic of power, matters of relevance, I think, to the literary community. For contemporary students of the Orient, from university scholars to policymakers, I've written with two ends in mind. One, to present their intellectual genealogy to them in a way that has not been done. Two, to criticize with the hope of stirring discussion the often unquestioned assumptions on which their work for the most part depends. For the general reader, this study deals with matters that always compel attention all of them connected not only with Western conceptions and treatments of the other, but also with the singularly important role played by Western culture in what Vico called the world of nations. Lastly, for readers in the so-called third world, this study proposes itself as a step towards an understanding not so much of Western politics and of the non-Western world in those politics as of the strength of Western cultural discourse, a strength too often mistaken as merely decorative or superstructural. My hope is to illustrate the formidable structure of cultural domination and specifically for formerly colonized people, the dangers and temptations of employing this structure upon themselves or upon others. The three long chapters and 12 shorter, shorter units, units into which this book is divided are intended to facilitate exposition as much as possible. Chapter 1, The Scope of Orientalism, draws a large circle around all the dimensions of the subject, both in terms of historical time and experiences and in terms of philosophical and political themes. Chapter 2, Orientalist Structures and Restructures, attempts to trace the development of modern Orientalism by a broadly chronological description and also by the description of a set of devices common to the work of important poets artists and scholars. 
Chapter 3, Orientalism, now begins where its predecessor left off at around 1870. This is the period of great colonial expansion into the Orient, and it culminates in World War II. The very last section of the Chapter 3 characterizes the shift from British and French to American hegemony. I attempt there finally to sketch the present intellectual and social realities of Orientalism in the United States. So here we are at the conclusion of Said's explanation of his methodology. And in this part that I just read, he is precisely telling us that, look, this is not an exhaustive work, right? which a lot of people make the mistake of reading Orientalism is. What he's saying is, I've picked up a few moments, a few figures, and a few texts to argue that something such as Orientalism existed and still exists. There is a hope there that someone else would also then start writing about culture and imperialism. Of course, he himself does that, right? But... What he's trying to attempt here is to suggest that this is this work may be the first of its kind, but it's not claiming to be the last of its kind, and it hopes to encourage other scholars to take on this mantle and then write about it. And that's exactly what happened. After all, the book launched the field of postcolonial studies, which is much derided these days, but it, I think it's still... Uh, wonderful field of study. It changed anthropological studies. It changed political science in different fields, right? Then he goes on to explain his varied audiences. First of all, of course, he's a scholar of literature, so he's telling us, the scholars of literature, here is what is useful to you in this book. Then he goes to the policymakers and says, I'm giving you the genealogy of what you believe in. Right? So why do you think a certain way about the Middle East? Why do you think a certain way about the Muslim world? Let me give you the discursive framework which brought you to this point and maybe now you can think about it differently. Right? Then he goes and talks about the people in the formerly colonized nations where he's saying none of this is accidental. This is not just text. This is strong policy. Right, driven by this discourse and do not internalize it and apply it on your own cultures because then you will be perpetuating the same mythologies. So that's where the room for post-colonial studies is created. And then to the general readers. These are the varied audiences he suggests that the book caters to. And then towards the end of this part, he gives us a breakdown of the three chapters of the book. What is he dealing with? How is he dealing with? And please keep in mind the instructive last paragraphs which are about the rise of American imperialism post-Second World War, the American hegemony that actually now has even been more accentuated than 1977 because in 1977 there was Soviet Union as a counterweight to United States and that no longer exists. Overall, then, in this methodological section, what we get is Said's explanation of Orientalism itself, his explanation of his reliance on Foucault's theory of discourse, and then where he differs from discourse, 
and then what we get is how his study is part literary studies, part historiography, part anthropology, right? And how it addresses itself to varied audiences. So by the end of this section, there should be no doubt left in our mind about Said's methodology. Why is he focusing on individual texts? Why did he exclude the Germans, right, German ideologists? Why is he using the theory of discourse? And why he is not offering this as an exhaustive, all-ending work, but as a beginning, right? There was a moment in one of the previous readings where I forgot to expound another point where he talks about that all texts are worldly, right? So that concept, I have a video on it too, but that concept comes from the world, the text, the critic, where he talks about that, that, that any text that we read is contingent upon the time in which we are reading it. It exists in the world. We read it in the world, and there is no way we can read a text as a, as a detached text, a text detached from the politics and over-determining determining factors of the discourse in which it exists. So this is all I have on the methodological part of Said's introduction. I'm pretty sure I missed a lot. So as always, if you have any questions, concerns, suggestions, put them in the comment section and I will try to address them. Then uh, for a future plan, of course, I'll come back and conclude the introduction by reading the last part of the introduction and sharing my thoughts about it with you. As always, I'm deeply grateful for your time and for you, you know, paying attention to whatever I'm trying to accomplish here and for your support. And uh, if you have not subscribed to the channel, please do so, so that you get timely notifications of what's coming up next. And as always, stay safe and peace and love.